This episode is called There Are No Rules. Annie Eaton disputes my suggestion that she's a legendary children's publisher, but I'm sticking to it and I'm lucky to call her a friend. Since her career began in the 1980s, she's published a raft of household names and it was wonderful to get a little insight into what makes writers like Jacqueline Wilson, Philip Pullman and Mallory Blackman stand out. Annie also talks about what happens when your book reaches an editor and what makes a successful marketing campaign. We recorded this conversation in October 2019. Links to the resources we mentioned are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. For this episode of The Writing Podcast, I am here with my friend Annie Eaton, who has been an editor in the UK publishing world for over 30 years. So hello, Annie. Welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. Annie's had such a varied career. I just want to talk to her about some of the highlights of that and also the editing side of the fence, which I know little about and, of course, she knows much about. So to tell you a little bit about Annie, she joined Puffin Books, correct me if any of this is wrong, Annie, um, in 1984 and became the publisher of children's books at Transworld Random House in 2002, says here. Shall I explain? Yes, you explain. I was at Puffin for five years as a junior editor and then commissioning. Then I went to Transworld where I sort of, as a commissioning editor, became an editorial director after about five years. Mm -hmm. Then there was a merger between Transworld and Random House, and I became publisher, Random House Fiction List at that point. And then more recently, about five years ago, Random House merged with Penguin. And that's when I took sort of a slightly more of a backseat as associate publisher. And then you tried to retire. <laughs> I tried. I did retire. And it, I year. don't think that worked very well because then you ended up at Faber, didn't you, doing some editing for them? Well, I was doing a bit of freelance for Tate Gallery Publishing and an agent. And I ended up going to Bologna and bumped into the Faber children's publisher, who I think was rather surprised to see me not retired. And I ended up covering her maternity leave. So you, they can't let you go, as far as I can see. Well, no, I am properly <laughs> retired now, although I am still doing a little freelance yes, work. Yes, and I'm waiting to see what the next Annie thing is going to be. And in the meantime, um, Annie has worked with, you might hear me turning over my bits of paper here, people such as Jacqueline Wilson, Philip yep. Pullman, Helen Cooper, Chris Riddell, Dick King-Smith, uh, and Mallory Blackman, RJ Palacio. I've been learning how to pronounce that. So lots of things that we can talk about. And she has been called legendary in the Writers and Artists Yearbook website, no less. And I think that is very true. I'm, I would probably argue that that's a bit <laughs> over the top. I'm sure you would, but I'm, I'm going to stick with legendary. I like that. And Francesca Dow has said, Annie always puts her authors first. And after publishing so many books, she still positively shimmers with excitement when she reads something <laughs> new that excites her. And I have seen this happen so that I know that it's true, even after all this time. So I'm really excited to be here with Annie this evening. To start off with, what I would love to know, because after 10 books I'm still not entirely sure, is what is an editor looking for in a submission? What makes you shimmer with excitement? Well, I suppose it's the it's the hardest question when you you meet with literary agents and they ask you, you know, what what are you looking for? Where are the gaps on your list? And there aren't 
usually many gaps that one has as a publisher. And what one is really looking for is just something that surprises you, a really unusual, a kind of different voice, special voice. And, you know, in a way, it, it's not about the necessarily about the plot. Oh, it's so many things. I mean, maybe it's easier to sort of list a couple of things that really did sort of take me by surprise. And I thought, wow, this is something we just have to publish. Oh, go on, tell me then. Um, well, you mentioned Wonder. Yes. Uh, for which I can take no editorial <laughs> credit because, of course, it was edited in America by a colleague at Random House America. But when that came in, it must have been about six years ago, I wasn't actually the first to read it. One of our editors, I think she might even have been assistant editor at the time, Natalie Doherty, mm -hmm. uh, brought it to me and said, look, I really love this. And I read it and absolutely adored it. it there was something about it that just, it had real heart and warmth and a fantastic character at the centre of it. And it's one of those books with a lot of different kind of characters and different voices in it. But it just left you feeling so happy and sort of crying with joy, which is not an exaggeration. I think we were all crying with joy when we read it. Actually, the first time I really remember that happening in my career was at Puffin when I was a junior editor and the manuscript for Goodnight Mr Tom was going round the right. round the department. Oh, and it was you know, it was a paper manuscript in those days. This was yes. before the you know, people read things on email or Kindles. And, you know, one by one we were just sort of sobbing at our desks at this wonderful book. I was talking about it recently, actually, with, with a class, because um, I was talking about what you can and can't say in children's books and using that as an example. If you can say almost anything, it depends how yeah, you say it. It's absolutely how you say it. But I think, going back to your original question of what, what are you looking for, you know, what is it that excites you? I think it's just being moved is, is the most exciting and special thing. That you know, just feeling that you are you're being kind of taken into well, not another world exactly but you're really in the story with these characters i mean everybody loves a good cry at a book but both of those books well, good night mr tom and wonder which are very different books i know mm -hmm. but they both had that power to just make you love the characters and I, you know, Goodnight Mr. Tom was a lot sadder as a story, but it, you still felt really good having read it, you know, it, it stayed with you and you, um, left you with a good feeling. And I think with Wonder, I just remember that fantastic sort of uplift, um, <laughs> just that the world could be a better place, you yes. know, if we only could all be a little bit kind. And I know this is the sort of message that has, has gone out with the book, but it, it really delivered in, in that way. And presumably, it has, had it already been through an editorial process in America yes, by the time you saw it? it had, and there was nothing in it that I wanted to argue with, which is quite oh, unusual. Yes. Um, because often, you, you know, you... You love an American novel, but you might kind of feel 
these things I would have tweaked if I had been the editor. Sometimes you have time to put your, you as a UK editor, to put your thoughts in and put your comments to the author. Um, and, you know, they aren't necessarily going to act on them. I yeah. mean, just recently at Faber, we acquired a book, which is just about to be published by a quakey amazy um, uh, from Nigeria, also Nigerian origin, who lives in New York, mm. and they they've become quite. Um, their first book was on the Women's Prize for Fiction, and I think the Welcome Prize. Anyway, um, it was very last minute when we were offered this book, and I did have quite a list of editorial things I would have wanted to talk to the author about, and eventually managed to send them off and get them via the agent in in front of the author. Yeah. And they said, they actually responded to all the queries with quite a satisfactory, mostly, I'm not going to change this because... Yes. I mean, there were one or two <laughs> things that they did change. But I'm saying they because a quick is non-binary and... A non-binary author. the pronoun. Yes, absolutely. That, that is what they choose. Yeah. So... Um, that was interesting because I felt at least I have said, you know, I've put the questions to them and have had the answer. But if, you, if you're getting something, it's got the voice somehow and, and you're drawn into the world and you're moved, but the plot leaves a lot to be desired in your opinion, mm. let's say, or it's got a couple of characters in it that you don't think should be there or you think should be different. Would it already have enough to to make you feel we can do something with this, or has it got to be a complete package these days? Oh gosh, every book is different. I mean, I have worked on books where, you know, eighty thousand words have come in, and we've cut the book to fifty thousand words, and we've chopped four of ten characters out mm -hmm. of the plot. You know, every author works in a different way and there are some authors probably uh, from the way you it seems that you work I mean we've never worked together I've never yeah sadly you, but, I would have loved but, to well you look as if you write a very tight manuscript and um you know something that's structurally very well thought through um there are many authors who have a wonderful voice and imagination but their books might come in in a much more sort of muddled shape. And in a way, you know, that's kind of interesting to work on. Well, it's interesting you should say that, because I've, I've noticed with, with some students over the years or people that I've encountered mm. in workshops, I think the voice is, is very nearly there. And I, I love the concept of the story, but they're not quite sure still about it themselves. Mm. And they're asking for advice. And I worry that over years, they're going to take, you know, a dozen different people's advice and lose what they had. And I wonder at that stage whether there, there should be a cutoff point where you, you let the editor help you make some of those decisions. I'm not sure there's a hard and fast rule. I mean, I think it's really important to... You've got to gel with an editor. And there are some authors I have worked with where the the chemistry just hasn't quite worked. I can't really think of an example right now, but I knew 
I wouldn't be going to be doing another book with a certain author. Yeah. You know, it wasn't necessarily a very satisfying and happy experience on both sides. There, there, is, there is a trust thing yeah. that, that is required, yeah. isn't there? And I, I don't know whose fault that was, whether that I was too intrusive or they were too sort of protective about their work. You know, it, it's, it is, it's the great thing about that, the Powell publishing business is that there are no rules, really. <laughs> every, every this book. This is not and, good for us on the no, other side. I'm we sorry. don't know what to do. No. But I think it's so, it, and that's what's really hard to pin down. You know, what is it about those incredible books that become classics? I mean, another book that I absolutely loved was The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. I didn't publish it. I mean, we paperbacked it. David yeah. Fickling published it. Uh, and I know there are, I've heard the odd person that actually doesn't like the book at all. Personally, I absolutely loved it. And I, I felt... It's, it's a tricky one. We were talking about this in the class as well, mm. in that on, on the level of sort of English language and so on, and as a literary work, wonderful. Mm. As a work of history, which it's now often taught as in schools, very problematic. So... Yeah. At what point should a writer, a debut writer, think I've done enough now and it's time to send it off? Publishers do buy book, acquire books at various levels of development. I mean, a lot of, you know, agents know publishers well enough. The job of an agent is to know publishers and the, the way they like to have things submitted so, you know, if an agent knows the sort of thing that I like, they might know that actually two or three chapters and a synopsis for, of the rest of the book may be enough to get me hooked and to get a, an offer out of me. But a lot of agents now submit to... In the old days, they used to submit, you know, exclusively to one publisher at a time oh, right. quite often. And yeah. now they tend to do multiple submission. Sometimes it might be as few as four publishers, three or four publishers. Sometimes it might be as many as ten. So they have to know the publishers and the editors and sort of gauge what what is enough to get them hooked, basically. But it might, might not be that the... The debut writer has had to create a completely perfect, polished finished Oh, no. Thing. A lot of books are acquired on a, you know, just a chapter and an outline for the rest of the story, actually. Right. I think we were going to talk a little bit about Philip Pullman. I don't think I can ask you enough questions no. about Philip Pullman. Well, so tell me about the first time you encountered him. It's sort of talk, thinking about authors who, you know, made an impact on you straight away with the first thing that you read of mm. theirs. And years ago, really, my first sort of proper job in children's books was at Puffin as a kind of junior editor and then an editor and then commission editor. And I acquired paperback rights to the Ruby and the Smoke trilogy from David Fickling, who was then at uh, OUP. Right. And just reading that very first Ruby and the Smoke book, I was just absolutely transported into kind of Victorian... London and well Philip's writing is just so perfect so sort of elegant but 
readable. Oh, it's um, very readable. I adored that book too. I, uh, yes, it's one of those books I wish I could have written myself. Yeah. It's just so exciting and feminist and, uh, yeah, thrilling. She's an, a wonderful character. Yeah. Um, and uh, how many books had he written by this stage, do you know? I think he had had a couple of young adult novels, contemporary young adult novels. I think Macmillan published, had published a couple of his books. And he had his first, very first book was Count Karlstein, first book for children, which I think was published by Chatto and Windus. Right. Which they rather unwisely let go out of print, and we oh. then reacquired it several <laughs> years later, ten years later or something. Right. But he hadn't had many books published, but he, uh, so I think Ruby and the Smoke was the, I think I'd read his young adult novels, his contemporary books, but. This was the first historical one that I had read, and, and mystery, and... And it, it had the voice, I assume. It had the voice, it had fantastic characters, it had so much atmosphere. Um, I didn't, I wasn't editing him then, of course, because I was buying paperback rights, and yeah. David had edited the book or, at so AUP. So had he already done that then before you yeah. saw it? So, right, yes. But I have a feeling that, David then left, had left OUP by the time he got to the third book, and I think I had then left Puffin, and I think on the third one, he was edited by the then editor at Puffin, Morris Lyon, on the third book. Maybe oh, it was I know Morris. Maybe in the Well, I think. Right, and did it need editing? You know, does uh, he submit a I perfect think manuscript? Philip was very happy to be edited. I, I can't remember exactly what was done, but I know, I remember Philip being pleased to be edited by Morris and being very happy with the suggestions that he had made. And I've since worked on Philip's younger books, the, what he calls his fairy tale books. So Clockwork, The Firework Maker's Daughter, mm. The Scarecrow and His Servant. And I remember with The Scarecrow and His Servant, both Philip and I, again, the story was nearly there. And there was something that wasn't quite working. And we talked about it a lot. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then suddenly Philip came up with the idea of writing a kind of earlier chapter and at the beginning of yes. the book, sort of putting... I, it wasn't so long since I've read it that I can't exactly <laughs> remember what it was. But, but you know, the best way is when an author actually comes up with a solution to the problem. That's always my favourite way. Yeah. Yes, I, I work that way quite a lot with Imogen Cooper at Chicken House. Yeah. She was very good at spotting when something wasn't quite yeah. gelling. And then, yeah, on a, on a great day, I came up with the answer. And I always like to own the answer if I possibly yeah. could. No, and she was very good at not enforcing things on me. So, it's yeah, really nice satisfying balance. when, you know, you can make a suggestion of how to solve the issue. Yeah. But when the author comes back with a better way of doing it, that's so much the best solution yeah because often well usually i find when, when you're making a change it actually has all sorts of ripple effects and the author knows best what those yeah. ripples are going to be and how how to avoid that happening or yeah. how to make the most of it happening in other places in the book so yes useful when we're we're really on yeah. top of our material i guess the other author one of my favorite authors of all time was dick king smith yeah. i didn't originally edit him he was published by golanks um and again, Puffin bought the paperback rights, which is what publishers did in those days. There were hardback publishers and paperback publishers. This is strange. It, I did not know this. I it, think I did sort of subconsciously, but it's so different from the world we live in now. I mean, I'm talking about back in the 70s and 
60s, 70s, early 80s. So the book came out in hardback usually and then a separate publisher bought yeah. the paperback rights. So the the publisher, Golangs, would sell the paperback rights rather than you buying it from an agent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the first book I worked on with Dick, I think, was George Speaks, about a baby who's born being able to just speak whole sentences. It's a really funny book. It wasn't one of his animal books, yeah. actually. But I'd read uh, The Sheep Pig by then and knew his... because I was just paperbacking him. And then we did some originals with Dick and George Speaks was one of them. Um, he was such good fun to work with. I follow him on Twitter, and is it his son it's who his, runs his Twitter account? The grandson. His grandson. His grandson, it's Charlie. Hilarious. It's hilarious. It's really fun. In in today's you know times, when not all of Twitter is fun, following that account oh, is Charlie very does cheering. it absolutely brilliantly. And actually, they recently, a couple of years ago, did a new website for Dick, which is really nice. And so you work with Jacqueline Wilson as well? Yes. I mean, I can't claim to have discovered Jackie. She was very well established when I first met her. And she had had a whole backlist of teenage books on the OUP list. Mm -hmm. And the first time I ever met her, well, the first time I've, uh, the first book of hers that I ever read, because I hadn't actually read her young adult books at that stage, was Tracy Beaker. Oh, really? And that's when I joined Transworld Stroke Double D. Yes. But, well, that's when it all took off for her. Yes, wasn't it? it was. So oh, David and I, David Fickling had commissioned her to write it. He'd worked with her at OUP. And this manuscript was one of the first ones that came in to us at Transworld Double Day. And I think the first meeting, oh, I loved it right from the start. It was just so fresh and different. Was it different from the other books that she'd written? Yes, oh. very different. Because they were quite sort of earnest but much more serious right. sort of young adult stories I mean she wrote crime fiction first I she has a whole backlist of crime oh, fiction my goodness. going in the 60s or seven, early no maybe 70s um, you see that, that really interesting what you were saying just just then about Tracy being kind of lighter from what she'd done before because you're talking about you know, the, the voice and being moved to tears by books mm. and yet here is a book that was perhaps doing that less than what she'd done and yet that was what resonated well, with what you? what I think was clever that Jackie did was a kind of light-hearted friendly accessible voice but with an underlying you know quite sad story yeah. underneath it you know realistic story with you know child in care actually but it was that mix that I hadn't really come across before uh-huh. and really accessible and and actually her, I don't remember whether it was her idea or David's to have it very highly illustrated. David had also worked with Nick Sharrett. Yes. And the very first meeting that we had was with the four of us where Nick came in with oh. this wonderful pencil rough for the original jacket, which was a great big, busy, busy jacket with all sorts of stuff going on and really, again, so different from anything else that was out there. It's something that Sarah McIntyre, I know, campaigns about a lot is illustrators being yeah. under-appreciated and under-recognised. And they do make a huge difference, don't they? they? Do. I mean, the, the Julia Donaldson-Axel Scheffler oh, combination, amazing. you know, it can take things to a whole new level, can't it? It certainly can. And, I mean, Nick is obviously a bit of a genius in his own right. I mean, he writes his own wonderful picture books. I think he might even have done some fiction recently, but... Mm -hmm. That it was that combination, as you say, like Julia and Axel, that and you know, 
Quentin Blake. Roald yes, and it's, 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 it's Quentin Blake who does David Williams' books, yes. doesn't it? I'm well, sure that Well, he did helps. the first. Oh, he did the first, and then right. Tony Ross took over. Yes. And yes. of course, looks quite in that vein. Yes. I think. Can do no harm. Can do no harm. <laughs> yeah, that was the clever thing that HarperCollins did. So. Gosh, so you were with Jacqueline Wilson back in the day. Yes. That's thrilling. She did the quote, quote for the cover of Threads when it came out. And that uh, people in the children's publishing world are so lovely. Because there she was. I mean, by the time I came along, she'd been writing for decades. And she was a busy, busy woman. Um, and she had to um, cut her signings back to, you know, mere thousands because she yeah. couldn't sign as much as she used to. And Barry sent her the manuscript of Threads, mm. and she read it over that weekend, bless her heart. She, she sent back a postcard straight away. She is the kindest woman. She is just delightful. So kind. And so, yes, so busy. So busy. And, you know, wasn't very well for several years and still carried on writing the books that we were able to publish. I mean, she's she is absolutely driven. You know, she will write... I mean, maybe she's lucky that she can write on trains and in yeah, cars. Yeah, I and think she is. Not everyone can do that, but she's just amazing that that the way she uh, the way she just delivers fantastic book after book. I mean, you know, not no author produces their best book every time, but yeah. every now and then she would come up with something really different. Like Hetty Feather yes. was one of her first historical ones. I remember when that um, one first came out, and it was such a new departure for yeah, her. Hugely successful. It was really exciting, yeah. And actually, she had written the Victorian one before, or, or with the sort of flashback section. But Hetty Feather was the first one that was sort of properly set in a historical period. Yeah, and I, I'm really, going into schools, fascinated to see how particularly girls need her books and love yeah. them. And I'm always glad when school librarians are, you know, open-minded enough to put them in girls' hands. I mean, I have heard, you know, friends of mine saying, oh, you know, I don't want my kids to read sad books. You know, I don't think they need... But kids actually love, you know, we adults love reading sad books and being moved by things. And it helps you to understand the world if you're reading about people that have tough lives, actually. I think kids seek them out. They want to know about that kind of thing. Yeah. So there was Jacqueline on your list. And, oh, yes, the other person I really wanted to to talk to you about um, was you published the first Mallory Blackman novel, I think. And that is a big deal. I think she had had a collection of short stories out with a small publisher beforehand. And she... Actually, the book came in and it got a not very not super positive report from one of the editors, but I liked the sound of it. It um, was Hacker. It was about computers oh yes, I and yes. in the day, you know, very innovative. And I remember reading it and thinking, you know, there's a lot of great energy here. I like this voice. I love these kids. Um, there was quite a lot of fiddling around and editing that we, that, you know, we felt, Philippa, my boss then, and I both read it. And anyway, we got Mallory in. And she tells this... She is very funny when she tells this story. She tells... She says that we told her we loved the book, but we thought the middle just needed a little bit of fixing. 
Also, the beginning needed a bit of fixing, and actually, the end needed fixing. <laughs> I know which this is conversation so well. Huge we love exaggeration. it. We love it. We love it. But <laughs> here's 17 I mean, pages of notes. It's massive exaggeration <laughs> because I don't think it was it was changed hugely from the original book. But she but kind so of made... she'd been rejected over 80 times. Well, yes, by that stage. which astonishes me. Um, but that is what she claims, and you know, I think perhaps it is just finding it's maybe it's a bit of luck landing on the desk of someone and they just gel with your work yes and I have to say she herself was just so kind of lovely promotable funny easy to get on with yes you know it was as much about that as about the book. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it really, really helps. I've very rarely bought a book from an author I haven't met. Yeah. In America, buying American books, of course, you, you very rarely do get a chance to meet them. But of course, then you're not editing the book and having to build that very close relationship. That's so interesting. But I think it is always really helpful meeting an author. And, you know, once or twice, within about two minutes, I've thought, oh my gosh, this is not going to work. It's going to be hard work. It's funny. I guess it's like when you're going for a job, sometimes you start an interview and you might know, or the person I'm interviewing, you might know that the body language or the chemistry just doesn't It's not, not going to happen. But with Mallory, you know, it, it was just great. She was just such good fun. And then she went on to be the children's laureate. She did and quite she's... a lot later, though, because yes, she, I yes, think, she was offered it. Then. She was offered it before she took it on, oh, and I think felt I'm not quite ready, and I need to get more books out before. Right. And actually, it did take a lot out of her time. And well, she was very active. I know when she, she was, was doing it. She was great. Actually, she was a brilliant laureate, but it put it set her back as far as her publishing, her books went. Yeah, I'm not surprised. She was she was out promoting sort of reading yeah. and literacy yeah. and all I sorts mean, of things. It was... she, she was doing it really well. Yes. So, oh yes, and that one one last little detail I wanted to talk to you about while you were here. So while I was looking you up, I mean, we've been friends for a long time, but I was looking you up anyway for, for this podcast, and um, I saw your name <laughs> alongside Philip Pullman's on the graphic novel of Northern Lights, and I thought... Why? And then you told me, and I just think this is so interesting. Well, I didn't, obviously, I didn't work on those books because David Fickling published those at Scholastic. Funnily enough, I do remember reading a tiny chunk of what I think in the end became The Subtle Knife. Um, But I wasn't clever enough to snap it up for Transworld. (laughs) David then went to Scholastic and, of course, he and Philip have the most fantastic friendship and relationship yeah and he published those books brilliantly but um when I was when um I think it was just about the point where Puffin and Random House were merging and Gallimard his Philip's French publisher had acquired graphic novel rights to the first book in the first trilogy and they were going to divide the book up into three separate graphic novels because the book is in three parts so each part of um northern lights was going to come out as a separate graphic novel this by the way i think is such a wonderful idea something that the french sort of do without thinking and the french of course have a big market for these books it's not it's growing gradually and 
in the UK, but yeah. it's been slow. I mean, I always loved, you know, Tintin, Aston. I mean, when I was growing up, I've still got all of those. Yes, I grew Can't up bear with to give them away. Absolutely. And my boys love them. So when um, we then bought the rights to publish, the, to translate those graphic novels from the French graphic novels back into English, um, and that was a really interesting job. So I speak French. I went to the French lycée. It's not because I'm clever, it's just because I grew up <laughs> speaking French. And um, But it was very interesting because I, I went back to the original novel to sort of pull back some a lot of Philip's original dialogue, for instance. Because, of course, graphic novels are mostly dialogue. I mean, it's yeah. like a screenplay. And that was really interesting and, and sort of fascinating to get into the books in that kind of detail and sort of work out how the French had translated certain bits and phrases so I did yeah that was three separate sort of jobs um in the end we decided at Puffin to publish all three in one hardback volume which I think actually makes a more satisfying book right than, than having them as three a, separate, a separate parts ones, yeah so that's you can still find the first two in paperback in the odd place shop here and there. I'm going to for them now. What a lovely idea. But uh, it's much more satisfying to have the hardback all in one right. volume. With your name and, and his on the I know. I feel very <laughs> honoured. And of course I had the lovely job of going down to Phillips and working through the translation with him. And and he was really, you know, great. To, he was really interested in the subtleties of, you know, why the French had done this in that way and how it would work back in English. Yes, and I can imagine was, that. He really threw his all into it. So, so. you've been to the den in Oxford. And yeah, yes. The quite, great place. Quite a few times. They're very welcoming, Philip and Jude. They usually, we go for a walk around the garden and they've, they've planted lots of trees in, in, a, in a sort of orchard or field next to their house. And it's, oh, it's a lovely house. I'm really fond of both of them. Well, the way you describe it, um, I, I picture, oh gosh, the the first of the, the new series. It sounds like where that, that was set. He, he wasn't sort of looking out of his window and setting it there, was he? I mean, obviously he knows Oxford and the surrounding countryside like the back of his hand. Um, but he's no, he doesn't actually look out on the... <laughs> on the I suddenly had that lovely vision. ...opening of the story. <laughs> So those are some of the the highlights. I just lo- always love to hear. Um, but I'm I'm also interested in this idea of the um, of the notes. Um, so you've you've found this amazing voice, mm-hmm. and um, I guess it's going to vary from author to author what happens next. But you've made your offer on the book as much as it yeah. as you've seen. Um, and then what do you expect to happen next? How long would you expect to work on the editing process with an author for? I mean, in an ideal world, I would like to read the full manuscript. Yeah. Um, but the way the world of publishing works is that agents often like to move more quickly. And obviously it helps an author the sooner they can have a, a deal and some advance on their work. Yeah the better for them so I think that's why sometimes you know deals are pushed early on 
occasionally that has been a, a tricky and the second half of a book has not turned out to be as promising as the first half mm. and that that's quite awkward um sometimes you can rescue something but not always interesting but mostly you know what if you read some early material and you love the voice and you the plot sounds promising and the characters sound great you know mostly it works but in an ideal world i would rather have the whole thing sure and if you if you have managed to see it all then is it a question of months to work with the author on tweaking it to the right level well, or weeks what will generally happen is you will look at your schedule and you'll work out how soon you could fit it in or whether there's an optimum time of year to publish i mean obviously if yeah. it's a christmas book you might want to publish it last quarter of the year if it's a summer you know there's obvious things like that so you'll fit it into your schedule if you have a really busy schedule you might not be able to fit it in for a couple of years wow sometimes books are scheduled two or three years ahead sometimes that's because the writing is might take that long yes um or if it's a trilogy and the author has written the first one you don't know how long an author spent on that they might have spent 10 years yeah you signed up three books how do you know if they're going to deliver the second one a year on and how do they know <laughs> and how do they know so yeah. sometimes you might if it's a trilogy you might want to be sure you're going to get all three in that trilogy so that you can publish them pretty close together yes. you know within a year or 18 months or you need to that in children's publishing, don't you? Because otherwise yeah. the, the audience has moved yeah. on. Yeah, and that's been tricky. With I mean, there was an American trilogy we acquired. Fantastic first book. It was a sort of dragon fantasy story. We loved it. Worcester loved it. And the author took, it was three or four years before the second one came in. And mm. the impetus had gone Just by gone, then. Yeah. So, and of course, we were, we were a bit hamstrung because the Americans published it. We had to go with the American pub date. Because that's the other thing, you've got to publish quite close to an American pub date if you're, and they have to if you're if it's a book that's you've sold to an American publisher, right? Vice versa, you've got to publish quite close together, otherwise you there's all sorts of complications about export markets. You know, if you don't publish it quite quickly, the American edition can get into Europe, which is yes. meant to be your exclusive territory. All this may change, <laughs> of course, with Brexit. But also prizes, you know, you're eligible. You have to look at the eligibility because I think if you don't publish books within three months of the American edition, they're not eligible for the Carnegie. So there's all sorts oh, of wow. details like that. What I'm getting from this is, is I suppose, overall for, for a debut author is it goes from being a, a work of art that one has slaved over yeah. in private for years to suddenly a commercial yeah. series of commercial decisions, commercial schedules, commercial deadlines. Yeah. A completely different world for us. And yes. we probably, if we, if we have any sense, we will have our own day job. Yes. Because <laughs> we can't rely I mean, on any money coming out of this. It's certainly a good bit of advice. Don't give the day job up until, you know, you know it's going to work. Yeah. I mean, every book is acquired to work. You know, you never buy... I mean, you were talking to me about Midlist earlier on. Yes, And yes. I don't think any publisher ever buys a book for the Midlist. There might be, there or have been in the past, sort of young fiction series where you've got a number of slots and there's a particular market for something. But with a 
an exciting novel, you know, something original with a great voice, a new voice, debut writer. Nobody would ever acquire a book to sort of publish it as a mid-list book. They would have the prizes in mind. They would have, you know, the Costa, the Carnegie, the Branford Bowes First Novel yeah. Award. I do think children's debut novelists are, are very lucky. There is a, a very welcoming world there yeah. for them to, to big them up as much as possible. And, yes, and, um, and there's a lovely community of yeah. writers, you know. when I mean, maybe I noticed it more in my most recent incarnation at Faber because that was a smaller list with a group of writers who all seemed to know each other. They would meet at things like the Faber Summer Party and conferences and... Well, they weren't all at the sales conferences, obviously. Festivals as well. But festivals, yeah. yeah. And it was encouraged, you know, to to sort of meet each other and chat and get to know each other. And, And I think they were all really supportive of each other. I think it was... I'm sure it was the same at... Random House and Puffin, but just sort of more obvious when it was a smaller list to right, see that yes. happening. It's handy with a smaller list in that yeah. way. You can get to know people more. Yeah. It's great for debut authors, and I think it's essential because you, you've got to get your head mm. above that parapet and it's hard. But, of course, after that, then then those safety nets go, and then you might find that the publisher isn't quite as enamoured of your second book as yeah. they were of your first. Well, when I first started in publishing, I think publishers were more kind of willing to maybe there was a easier market than you had a pretty guaranteed book club market in mm-hmm. those days you know where you might have five ten twenty thousand copies going to scholastic or red house book club or, or there were lots yes. of sort of those kinds of outlets and you would also have the kind of library sheets people used to buy sheets and bind them up i don't know if that still happens i don't think no, it does I didn't hear about that. so there it seemed to be easier to build up a print run in those days and people might have four five six books published before they kind of hit the big time with the one that got noticed and that's and how, that's, that's much tougher I these think days it i think is isn't tougher. it tougher it's a more competitive world there are a lot more people i think trying to get into it and of course people see David Walliams, J.K. Rowling, Jackie Wilson, Philip, you know they they see the successes, They the general public probably have no idea of... About the other hundred thousand of us quietly publishing away. It's more, you know, since I have retired, well, and then gone back and retired again, I've sort of been more astonished in a way at how hard authors work and how how much they put into their books and how most authors I mean you know you do get some authors who might kind of dash something off but most authors are really really kind of dedicated and careful and thoughtful and you know it's it's a really hard job actually and I have huge admiration yes it, it's authors. definitely not worth doing the maths in terms of the effort that you put into no. writing it and then what happens next no. but describe to me what a great marketing campaign would be like from the publisher's point of view so if you've got a book like wonder or something yeah. like that and you you just have this feeling that it's gonna be a major well, success what, what do you do what you really want and what happened with wonder and with other books like 
boy in striped pyjamas, noughts and crosses. I mean, noughts and crosses was Mallory's um, oh, probably 10th book or something. Right. But what you really want is to get the whole company talking about a book. Yes. And that's what Transworld used to be really good at. And actually Random House. And, and actually, I think... PRH, Penguin Random House, as they are now, are very focused. And sometimes what will happen is a book will be acquired at a certain level. And the tricky thing is when other things kind of jump in in front of it, like you might get something that's signed up and put on a schedule. Yeah. And that's why it's quite good to be published quite soon after you're acquired, you know, not much more than a year after you've been acquired. Because the danger is that you want the same team that acquired it to still yes. be there. You <laughs> don't true. want that enthusiastic marketing or publicity person to have moved to another publisher. And I have seen that happen to friends. That yes. has definitely happened. And you don't want something more exciting, well, what some people might consider more exciting, yes. to jump in... Yes and nudge it out of the way. And I have seen that happen quite often, that a book that there was a lot of excitement about might get nudged sideways. Um, and I think that's probably more likely to happen with a big publisher than a smaller public, smaller independent publisher. I mean, it's just the way of the world, really. Yes, you, you can't get the whole company talking about everything. Mm. You just... That's just but not possible. It's... It's not necessarily a lot of money being thrown at a book mm -hmm. on a marketing campaign or an ad campaign that's right. going to make it work. Yeah. It's about getting the word of mouth going. That's right. That's what you really want. And that does come from the publisher to start with. It comes from getting your colleagues in children's world, also getting your adult colleagues to read it. Because actually... I know I keep going back to Wonder, but the adult team read that. This happened with Jenny Downham's book, her first book. The adult team at Transworld read it and decided they wanted to do an adult edition of it. Right. Which they did. Yes. And actually, it, it gave the book an extra oomph, but there's still a lot of discussion about whether actually two editions is sensible. Mm -hmm. The best thing really is to get one edition out there and get it into the adult shelves as well as so you just want people talking yeah. about it so but at Bologna talking. and Frankfurt yeah. and all, all these book yeah. festivals and things and you want if you're in a place where there are adult publishers as well like Transworld or Penguin Random House in a way at Transworld it was sort of quite good and that's what Faber was like because you're very much in contact with those adult editors you pass them in the corridor right and they might pass you things and you might pass them things and some of them have kids and they're interested for that reason to uh, about you know to read children's books so it's but it is the talk it's the word of mouth that really gets a book going at the beginning and then there are things there are quite a lot of independent publishers who are very good at spreading the word sort of movers and shakers you know people like tales on moon lane mm -hmm. and obviously you want to get waterstones behind it because yes. waterstones <laughs> you know is the biggest and most widespread outlet there is 
It's so tricky now that there's only yeah. one. It really. is tricky because when I started, which was not that long ago, it was a decade ago. There were there were four or five big yeah. retail there chains: Zotica's, Books, etc. Dylan's, um, Dylan's, yeah. Um, Borders. Yes, Borders, good old Borders and their lovely um, coffee shops. Yeah. And then one by one they went and now it is, it's Waterstones or, or Bust, yeah. really. I mean, Waterstones, you know, they do a great job, but they can't sell everything. Yes. And so they have to select. And so, you you know, you've got to trust that your publisher has a great relationship with Waterstones. <laughs> and obviously every publisher employs a salesperson that they, yeah. they expect hope and expect will have that relationship but but so have you have you had books where the word of mouth wasn't really there in the trade and yet commercially it's just kind of taken off like a rocket to everyone's surprise well I suppose with an author like David Williams I mean there are those books like David Williams where the advance was just so huge that the publisher was obviously going to put a massive marketing spend behind yeah. that. But of course he was a celebrity and hit, those books hit just as he was doing that channel swim or swimming up the Thames. Oh, right, So yes. he had suddenly gone from being the sli- slightly dangerous comedian <laughs> with Little Britain, you know, should our kids really be watching this, do yes. they understand irony, to actually being the nation's darling, um, raising all this money for charity. And that was just incredibly lucky, perfect timing, but also lucky. So, you know, there obviously are those books where a huge amount of money is spent on them and it works, but it doesn't always work. Are there any other highlights that, since we've been talking, you thought, oh, yes, that would be an interesting one to to mention? Well, I was just thinking about the ones that got away. Oh, yes. Oh God, Harry Potter is the obvious. One. I, I have, I didn't read. <laughs> Were it. you one of the twelve who turned it down? Uh, not personally, but but <laughs> yes, I think um, we only discovered about several years after it had been published that it had been turned oh, down. Oh no! Well, you can imagine looking through the log of submissions and suddenly coming across the fact that we had seen this. Oh, someone, God. the editor who had actually <laughs> since left, had. Um, Turned it down. Because to me, the friendship just sang through. After the initial chapter about owls, which is very long and owlish. I have to say, I did find the first two chapters quite hard. (laughs) I mean, it was... (laughs) Looking back. But I took the book away after an Edinburgh book festival where I think it was Lindsay Fraser up in Edinburgh said... I was picking up books to take on holiday with Ted, who was then 11. Mm -hmm. Bought about 10 books. And she said, oh, this is one we're really enjoying. It's Harry Potter, the author's a local... Edinburgh person so put, bunged that in the pack as well got to France and Ted read his way through these 11 books got to Harry Potter and read it again as soon as he had finished and then oh. I think he read it three times on the trot and I thought wow oh, that's when you know <laughs> got something even if yes. I don't get it because I, I didn't think I had read it at that point mm. but I hear a lot of stories about mm. that kind of thing when it came out, that it, it really did have something. Yeah. It's, it's such a it's phenomenon now, and it changed the publishing market, really, didn't it? That mm. it's, it, it might seem, a, well, that was, pe- people made that happen. But, but actually, mm. I, at the time when the world hadn't read it, 
there were mm. there were children and there were adults in the book while mm. discovering it for the first time and and just being absolutely enthralled yeah. by it. I mean, my brother-in-law, who is in his sixties, you know, rushed out and bought it straight away and read it immediately. Massive fan. <laughs> I mean, I... excellent. Any others that got away? Um, well, actually, Holes was one that got uh, away. But one of my favourite books all time. I absolutely love that book, but the poor editor who turned it down saw me say that the other day and oh, no. I felt really bad because she's actually a really good she's a really good publisher I really love books about stories and Holes is really a book about stories it was it was so original to mm. that book there was nothing like it out there it's it's such a satisfying book to read I remember uh, as is the way my my now 18 year old was given it to read at starting secondary school mm. so you know it's a school you know maybe end of primary school and um, I asked him to tell me what it was about. And he said, it's about this boy who's in this reform school mm. in America. He's been sent to sort of prison. And he's out in the desert all day digging holes. And it's just torture, really. And I was horrified that my child was being mm. made to read this extremely depressing book. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm going to read it because I'm about to go and complain to the school. And I read it and I just thought, it's one of the best books I've yeah, ever read. brilliant. And it was funny. I think yeah. I love funny books, actually. There aren't very many very successful funny books so um tell me about a picture book well i think one of the highlights for me in the picture book area which i haven't published all that many picture books because fiction is my sort of special area but i have worked with helen cooper on her wonderful pumpkin soup uh trilogy which it comes out every autumn and it's I think it might be its 20th anniversary now. Uh, it won the Green Away. And she also won the Green Away with a baby who wouldn't go to bed. So I think that, you know, those are a couple of highlights from my career. I first bumped into Helen and at the Bologna Book Fair and she came back to London and stayed the night. And she took photographs of me and my son, Ted, who was then about two or three, and put us in a book called The Bear Under the Stairs. Oh, how lovely. Which I look at now and think, God, I wish I was still that young. He's now 32. And Helen has now moved to writing fiction. And in fact, I had a book published by DFB called The Hippo at the End of the Hall. Which I've read. Which yes, which is very just lovely. coming out in America. And she's got a new book coming, which I'm very happily going to be editing in a freelance capacity. You see, I told you so. that publishing world cannot let you go, Annie. Anyway, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much well, for doing it's this been a pleasure. with me. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at PrePubPodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.